This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and great fortunes are being made in Kazakhstan's fuel sector, especially after the government raised the price of fuel by 50% at the beginning of this year, which led to the largest protest Kazakhstan has ever seen. That price hike also led to the most violent protest Kazakhstan has ever witnessed. While the recent protests were the largest and most violent, protests in Kazakhstan are nothing new. In 2019, protests led to the resignation of President Nursultan Nazarbayev, leading to his hand-picked successor, the current president, Kasim Jomart Tokayev. Nazarbayev had been the only president Kazakhstan had ever known since it won independence from the Soviet Union back in 1991. But with Tokayev in power and protests continuing, the new president granted new freedoms to the Kazakh people when it comes to freedom of press and speech. President Tokayev is now blaming those very same freedoms that he granted on this month's protests. Meanwhile, the former president, who despite no longer being president, still held the title of leader of the nation, which he was given back in 2010, was blaming the protests on those who want to destroy the integrity of the country and the foundation of the state. However, protesters like those in Oyan Kazakhstan, or Wake Up Kazakhstan movement, say that while the fuel price hike may have triggered the protests, they were about a lot more. What they see is a corrupt state that has imposed inequality with policies that lead to poverty, while making a few government-connected businessmen immensely wealthy, revealing cronyism at the highest levels of political leadership. They also see themselves, the protesters, as supporting oil field workers who went on strike as they have in the past, strikes that have been violently crushed by police crackdowns historically. And they want a lot more than just lower fuel prices. They want reforms, reforms like a multi-party system and a parliamentary republic. Sure, here in the States, the story may have been fuel prices are raised and protesters took to the streets, then the Russians came in and helped the Kazakh government and their police with a crackdown. But there's a lot more to these peaceful protests that were hijacked by violent elements, including criminals and militant Islamists. We'll try to figure out what is happening in Kazakhstan in a few when we speak with Dr. Paolo Sorbello, journalist and researcher covering Kazakhstan and Central Asia. You can follow him on Twitter at Paolo Bottleneck. That's Paolo, P-A-O-L-O, Bottleneck. His recent writing includes fuel protests spill over into political demands across Kazakhstan and our activism won't stop. The Oyan movement recounts the January protests in Kazakhstan, which were posted at Global Voices, and you can find Global Voices at globalvoices.org. He also had articles at Open Democracy, including Anger, Injustice, and Politics Brought People to the Streets in Kazakhstan and Reporting on Kazakhstan's Chaos Amid Internet Shutdowns and Violence, all of which can be found at opendemocracy.net More importantly than any of that, Paolo is a former question from hell winner and I believe he won twice both in 2018 as well as in June of 2021 and he's been a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon since October 2020 and I didn't know or realize any of that until I started researching Paolo for today's interview I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vopert. Sebastian, what was the music that you were playing before the intro? Uh, that was by Berlin punk band Die Ärzte. Uh, the title is called Radio Brent, and it's, uh, well, it's, it's an old punk song from basically the 80s, if I'm not entirely mistaken, about how uh, there's only crap on the radio, so... 
we burn the radio down. Well, that sounds pretty good. I'm very interested in that all of a sudden. Uh, do you have any plans for the weekend whatsoever? Uh, not not necessarily anything anything too exciting. Staying um, inside, away from the cold. Yeah, pretty much staying away from the staying away from the cold, staying away from crowds. Don't let anybody sneeze on me. I still we still have Christmas cards to write because apparently that's a thing we do now. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's a thing we do now because that used to be a thing that people did when I was a kid, and then people stopped doing it. So you're doing it now because you're married, right? Yeah, you know yeah. that's that's uh, domestic life is is bringing these uh, blessings with it. Um, I, I, I say that sounding very sarcastic, but I actually enjoy the, pro- the whole process. You know, what's funny is I remember my folks had this, you know, directory, this handwritten directory, this like catalog with tabs on the side, and they would go through it at Christmas time to see who they sent Christmas cards to in the past, but also a record of who they received them from. And if they hadn't received a Christmas card from somebody in the last three years, they would cut them off their mailing list. It was a big ordeal, it was a big dramatic ordeal right at the beginning of the holiday seasons for my family. Also with you is Alexander Jerry, who is just observing and again in a cameo role on today's show. As for me, I think I, I think I have a new anxiety. I'm very excited about it. That is, it's an anxiety I've had for a very long time, but I had recognized it, I had not re- recognized it until just recently, I guess. There's something called time anxiety, which is a preoccupation with being late. It can also be triggered by like filling your planner, your daily journal, or making a schedule that fills you with a feeling of dread that you simply do not have the time to do everything you need to get done. As I can easily obsess on things like time and anything, the problem even gets worse for me as I often have uncontrollable and recurring thoughts that I have the urge to repeat over and over. Thoughts that can be very distracting and, yes, time-consuming. But I am not certain if I would call it time anxiety as much as I would personally label it clock anxiety, because my anxiety, an anxiety that interrupts my sleep seemingly every night and early morning, is an anxiety over what time it is and when I have to wake up, and it leads me to waking up over and over again every morning, checking to see what time it is, worrying that I've slept in, or worse, being preoccupied with how much more sleep I can get before having to get out of bed. I knock myself out each night with sleeping aids like Benadryl, melatonin, even something called valerian root, But they only last so long. That's when still half asleep, I check the time and do the math to figure out how much longer I can sleep before the alarm goes off. Math that wakes me up makes it difficult for me to go back to sleep. It all leads to me often getting out of bed before the alarm because this anxiety keeps me from going back to sleep. So lucky me, now I've recognized yet another anxiety that's likely been exacerbated by the pandemic, but more important than my most recently discovered anxiety, Sebastian, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? And Sloan T.L. says Jesus, so apparently somebody's putting off their come to Jesus moment. <laughs> um, Why would you put off your come to Jesus moment? Yeah. That seems like an odd thing. Yeah. They might want to rush right into that and, you know, get ahead of the Christmas rush. <laughs> um, via uh, via DM through Twitter, we got um, putting out, but really, starting a podcast with my 74-year-old best friend, who used to be an international drug smuggler and lived on Howard Taylor's land on Kauai in uh, the in a treehouse in the 70s. Do you know who Howard Taylor is? Mm, I do not. 
I tried to look it up. There's too many Howard Taylors, and you can't really put Howard Taylor drug smuggler in without all of a sudden getting ads for a whole bunch of doctors, which I found very odd. Well, all the Howard Taylors of the world have to make their money somehow, I guess. Um, Paul H. says, Dusting, partly because that spider's web above my TV is very intricate and impressive, procrastinating on working around it. Besides, spiders are good. They kill all the other insects in yeah. your house. Yeah, exactly. As, as I, I keep telling everybody who, who is arachnophobic, I mean, I know this, you shouldn't do that because a phobia is a phobia, but ultimately spiders are are friends because they kill the, the the things that actually bite you and suck your blood and transmit disease and um, get rid of ugly things like millipedes and centipedes which are really gross i mean those two eat mosquitoes so oh that's true they're that's, technically yeah. on our side yeah, in, in the big war as well uh genevieve says i'm putting off finding a livable a livable wage <laughs> all right and a hypocrite reader says finally finishing off uh, on a winter's night a traveler I suspect Calvino would approve. Uh, Italo Calvino. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check all that stuff out right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Kristen B. of Hinchinbrook, Quebec, who went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and picked up a This Is Hell trucker cap. Thanks, Kristen in Quebec. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff Tangles with All Pervasive Network. Sebastian will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Paolo on what the hell happened in Kazakhstan this month. Again, the question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? Wally emailed us at chuckatthisishell.com with a guest suggestion. Wally writes, here's one that could be interesting. The Week, A History of the Unnatural Rhythms That Make Us Who We Are, an investigation into the evolution of the seven-day week and how our attachment to its rhythms influences how we live. We take the seven-day week for granted, rarely asking what anchors it or what it does to us. Yet weeks are not dictated by the natural order. They are, in fact, an artificial construction of the modern world. With meticulous archival research that draws on a wide array of sources, David Henkin, the author, reveals how our current devotion to weekly rhythms emerged in the United States during the first half of the 19th century, reconstructing how weekly patterns insulated themselves, sorry, insinuated themselves into the social practices and mental habits of Americans. Henkin argues that the week is more than just a regimen of rest days or breaks from work, but a dominant organizational principle of modern society. Author is doing an online talk via seminary co-op on January 27th. That's uh, David Henkin on his book, The Week. And you can find out more about this event at semcoop, S-E-M-C-O-O-P dot com slash week. Thanks, Wally. 
That book does sound good and very much like the kind of topic we discuss here on This Is Hell, the kind that can alter perceptions about something we have taken for granted far too much. And we also got a guest suggestion from Andy. Andy writes, hey, Chuck and Alex and Richard and Jeff and the person who does Rotten History and whoever else I'm missing. I'm writing to suggest a guest, namely James Muldoon, a researcher on digital platforms and digital labor at Autonomy in the UK and author of the new book Platform Socialism coming out on January 20th. Hey, that's today. I heard a pretty good interview with him on the Blockchain Socialist podcast and thought they might make a good guest and book to read. Also, sorry to hear about your GERD, that's gastroesophageal reflux disease. One thing to be aware of with your prescription to omeprazole, since this drug blocks your production of stomach acid, it also is blocking your first line of defense against all sorts of nasty little bacteria that could cause even more problems, which my doctor did not warn me about and caused me no small amount of hell. So be sure your food is cooked well and maybe stay away from delicious cured meats and other such bacteria-laden delights for the time being. First, thanks for the guest suggestion. I really appreciate it, Andy. Uh, Here's the description of James Muldoon's uh, platform socialism at the Pluto Press website. Whoever controls the platforms controls the future. Platform socialism sets out an alternative vision and concrete proposals for a digital economy that expands our freedom. Powerful tech companies now own the digital infrastructure of 21st century social life masquerading as global community builders. These companies have developed sophisticated new techniques for extracting wealth from their users. And that sounds absolutely great. I really appreciate it. Uh, But uh, second, I I just got to ask, is the podcast title Blockchain Socialism supposed to be contrarian, contradictory, ironic in some way? If not, Can anyone please explain blockchain socialism, not the podcast, but what blockchain socialism would look like? And finally, Andy, I got to know, does duck pastrami count as cured meat? Because if it does, I'm going to pretend it doesn't, as it was the greatest thing I was introduced to over the holidays, the glory and wonder that is duck pastrami. Wow, is it amazing. Coming up. This month's anti-government protests in Kazakhstan. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth is coming up. Jeff will tangle with all pervasive networks. And we have yet another listener email to share with you, which is kind of hilarious. Your eyewitness to grief, this is Hell in Kazakhstan, 2022, began with the largest and eventually the most violent protests the former Soviet Republic has ever seen. Sure, the nation has seen its share of protests over the years. In 1986, protests against the Soviet leadership were met with a police crackdown, as were protests in 2011, 2016, 2019. I'm sure I'm missing some more in there. There were even protests this last December on the nation's 30th anniversary of independence. So what led to the recent protests being the biggest yet? Was it all simply about the rise in fuel prices, or is there something else, something bigger taking place? Here to help us have a better understanding about this month's protest, Dr. Paolo Sorbello is a journalist and researcher covering Kazakhstan and Central Asia. You can follow him on Twitter at Paolo Bottleneck. Welcome to This Is Hell, Paolo. Hi, Chuck. It's great having you on the show, and I did not realize that you're already a two-time winner of The Question from Hell and a Patreon subscriber, so thank you very much for participating in the show and for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. 
for sure. I'm truly honored to have a chance to speak with you and your listeners about this important topic. So are you still in Italy at this time? Yeah, I'm planning my uh, trip back to to my home in Kazakhstan uh, soon, but I just visited my parents for Christmas. So how safe do you feel about returning to Kazakhstan, considering the crackdown that's been happening on the media? The situation is is quite uh, okay at the moment on the streets, uh, although, as you pointed out, uh, the situation against the media um, is probably likely going to uh, worsen. Although we have seen uh, much less pressure on foreign media uh, compared to local media, especially local media in the peripheries, not in the biggest cities. Do you think it will have any impact on the kind of reporting that you do? Will it have an impact on independent journalism in Kazakhstan? Well, I know my colleagues uh, who work in uh, independent journalism in the country, and they're among the most fearless um, uh, professionals that I've ever met. Um, and they they are really encumbered by by this kind of uh, pressure, although they, they do suffer um, the, the tensions and uh, website blockings and uh, yeah, uh, a lot of pressure in general, also calls from from uh, unknown, uh, you know, members of the security forces, um, just asking them to, to take down some stories or to uh, kind of uh, make it appear less uh, negative against the government. How difficult do you think it will be to maybe go back to a time when independent journalists didn't have as many protections and freedoms as they have now? As President Tokayev has pointed out, he did grant more freedoms of speech back in 2020. If it was, if those freedoms were to be rolled back, how difficult would it be? Would it to be? Would it be to you and your media colleagues to go back to an earlier state of less freedom of reporting? Well, what uh, President Tokayev said um, was that he was w- willing to to open up the country, to listen more to the people. Uh, what we've all seen uh, in Kazakhstan is that uh, this promise was uh, unfulfilled. Um, also because uh, they used the COVID restrictions to um, impede and hinder uh, journalists from participating in press conferences, for example. So a lot of the government officials didn't have the, um, any kind of uh, feedback from, from, from the local journalists. Uh, some of them were shut down when they intervened via Zoom during um, internet uh, press conferences. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, what he meant as you know the listening state, as he um, uh, dubbed it, uh, actually did listen at all to the people. And this is why um, they had to react uh, to the protests that erupted rather than anticipate them. So what do you think is a bigger obstacle to you reporting an independent journalism in the future? Is it the existence of the pandemic or is it restrictions being placed on journalists by the government? The restrictions are are always there and always kind of like a, um, a specter that is always be around the corner. Um, the country was shut down, uh, the internet in the country was shut down for five entire days 
which was also unprecedented. Uh, and, uh, and so people were using all sorts of um, alternative means via telephone, via uh, double VPNs and proxies with um, foreign SIM cards to, to be able to, to get the news out. And it was quite impossible uh, to, to even hear regular uh, news about the country. Um, a lot of people inside the country didn't know what was going on. Uh, once I reached them, I, they asked me uh, from Italy uh, what was going on in their country. Um, so, so in that sense, the government has the capacity to kind of shut down any uh, media um, attempt to clarify uh, the situation and to bring uh, up um, the most uh, thorny issues in the country. So when you are outside the country and people who are in the media within Kazakhstan are asking you about what's happening in Kazakhstan because they simply don't know due to the blackout, or blackout um, you're sources must have been at some point, at least consuming some of the foreign press when it came to Kazakhstan. How would you rate the coverage that you did see by the foreign press of what is happening in Kazakhstan? Oh, uh, terrible. Uh, I keep saying that I've been kind of a firefighter uh, among many. Uh, there's been a few people who have lived in Kazakhstan, researched Kazakhstan. Uh, a few colleagues from the foreign press were also abroad, and they also tried to kind of temper the, um, the mess that was being written in, uh, in a lot of the uh, press in, uh, in the US, in the UK, in Italy as well. Um, because most of, the, of this coverage uh, started from two point of views. One, the kind of stereotypes that we have about uh, a post-Soviet country that neighbors Russia. Um, and two, uh, because a lot of the, uh, this foreign press uh, correspondents actually are based in Moscow. So they filter everything through the Russian press. And that means that uh, whichever the conspiracy uh, is, in, is uh, brewing in Russia, they kind of eat and, and they feed it back to, um, to the readers. So um, it's, been, it's been quite a challenge to kind of bring back uh, the conversation on what's happening in Kazakhstan as opposed to kind of the geopolitical um, uh, maneuvers that are supposedly happening around Kazakhstan. Here in the States, as you likely know, uh, the focus was on Russia's role and Russia intervening and Russia helping with the police crackdown of the protesters. Uh, how do you feel about that focus on the Russian intervention and how much do you think that was part of the story? How important is that as an understanding of what was happening in the Kazakhstan protests? Well, some people even spoke about um, an invasion and uh, the fact that uh, Russia and some other countries that uh, are part of this uh, CSTO treaty, which is similar to the NATO treaty, um, the fact that 2,500 uh, units uh, went into Kazakhstan is uh, ridiculous to call that a, an invasion, also because in you know less than two weeks uh yesterday they uh finalized their return to their own uh country so there are no more kind of foreign soldiers in the country that intervention uh i and and a lot of other people read it as um as kind of like an assurance by by the neighbors uh that uh tokayev uh, has got their back 
and um, they have he can rely on on their support uh, if worse come to worse. But apparently there there hasn't been uh, the actual need for for this uh, kind of uh, special forces and uh, foreign um, army to actually police the streets um, because they they were only deployed to strategic assets to defend these strategic assets such as the airport in Almaty, which is the largest city and the place where uh, most of the um, violence occurred. How much do you think the, you know, manufactured, if you will, uh, tensions between the United States and, and Ukraine and Russia, how much do you think that that contributed to the type of coverage that we were seeing here in the United States, focusing on the possibility of a Russian invasion into Kazakhstan? That contributed a lot, I think, and that was um, kind of, uh, coming from Kazakhstan. I see it as a almost an offensive play by by the U.S. Uh, kind of using um, this deployment in Kazakhstan to to play on a different uh, chessboard, you know, on, on the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, deal, which is completely different, much more serious, much more. Um, deserving of uh, a different kind of attention f from uh, kind of the diplomacies of the world. This one was more um, a local event that showed uh, what a colleague of mine, um, Filippo Costa Buranelli, calls um, uh, authoritarian solidarity. Uh, so there is um, this kind of solidarity among um, authoritarian leaders who intervene and protect uh, the the health of uh, of authoritarian states um, that are neighboring, but yeah, for sure uh, this was kind of um, a misleading um, reading of uh, of the of the matter in Kazakhstan, and I think it was on purpose misleading so that uh, in order to um, beef up the, the the argument against Russia and Ukraine. There has been a kind of uh, a sense of nostalgic support for Russia for the days of the Soviet Union. People look back at those days through rose-colored glasses because, you know, they want to have a more positive and bright picture about the future by looking at a sometimes, a, again, a manufactured past. How much do you think that there is within Kazakhstan a nostalgic support for Russia looking back at those times as somehow positive? It, there is uh, some some sort of nostalgia. It sits, though, mostly with the older population, uh, and we have to note that 50% uh, of uh, Kazakhstan is younger uh, than 30 years old. Uh, so uh, most of them essentially were born after independence and have never lived within the Soviet Union. So um, there is a little bit of um, of a nostalgia towards. Um, and, and the only kind of nostalgia that there is is towards um, a more equitable uh, welfare system, um, because with the transition to market uh, or pseudo market reforms, um, what we've seen in the in the past thirty years is that uh, very few people, very few uh, restricted elite groups, have uh, amassed. Uh, an immense amount of uh, wealth, uh, whereas most other people uh, have remained impoverished and uh, gotten even more poor as uh, as the years go go by. Is how much is there a generational divide then within uh, Kazakhstan? How much are the, do those protests reflect the uh, gen generational divide in Kazakhstan? 
The it's interesting. The, some of, some of the producers um, of the usual let's call them like this the usual producers. Some of them are are older generation, so they are from the kind of eighty six protests the, against the Soviet um, power. They were essentially uh, they want equality. They want. Uh, a, 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 equitable uh, government and legitimate uh, government. Um, but then the same similar demands uh, trickle down to uh, other newer forms of opposition, the liberal opposition of uh, the early 2000s, which is uh, still alive, although it's much more focused against the Nazarbayev uh, slash Tokayev system. And the younger generation, uh, the one that you cited, the Oyan uh, Kazakhstan movement, um, they're even more um, focused on uh, essentially uh, representation, equality, and uh, willingness to participate in, in, in the political life of the country. You write that the event that sparked the unrest was the sharp increase in the price of liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, not LNG, the preferred fuel for cars in Kazakhstan's western region. In Oktava, the capital of Mangistau region, most uh, automobiles are equipped with an extra LPG tank, which is kept in the trunk. LPG was much cheaper than gasoline and helped keep transport prices low. You were mentioning market reforms earlier. Why were LPG prices increased in Western Kazakhstan, where residents depend upon LPG and its low price, which makes it the preferred fuel of the region? Well, the story is about, uh, it was sold uh, as a market liberalization. They went from um, a system of uh, a few companies essentially uh, providing fuel uh, at a subsidized price, so the state was paying for for the markup, uh, and then they turned into this electronic system, bidding system, um, and this essentially uh, allowed uh, the companies to to set higher prices and uh, compete at a, at a higher level of prices, and and this uh, in turn caused the, the increase in in prices. Um, so the story was told after the increase that. Well, it's the market, baby. Um, and one public official even said that if uh, fuel is now too expensive, um, people should use public transit. And uh, for your listeners also to, to understand, uh, public transit is nearly non-existent in, uh, in the region of Mangistau, also because um, the, the vast uh, extent of the, of the landmass there, it's, it's really uh, huge distances and, and there's no real uh, neighboring cities there. So it, it was a kind of, it sounded like uh, let them eat cake um, in, in a way uh, as, a, as a public outing. And, and this essentially uh, was yet another decision uh, that was felt to be external to the population's ability to make their voices heard. Um, so they were imposed this uh, another, yet another uh, decision uh, that affected their uh, purchasing power, their ability to uh, to survive, essentially. And uh, and this caused a protest. Uh, and it was uh, like you said also in the introduction, it wasn't the first protest, um, but it. Uh, resonated so well across the country that it spiraled uh, pretty quickly and uh, it mushroomed in uh, several different cities in Kazakhstan spontaneously, which was 
really unprecedented and, and really impressive to see. So is there a disconnect between political leadership and those who live in the Western region? Is there even a, a cultural disconnect? Uh, yes, for sure. There, there is a total disconnect um, between between the leadership and the people. Um, sometimes this was also uh, highlighted by by the presidents themselves. They, uh, whenever there is a problem, they kind of reprimand uh, the ministers or the local governors, saying you are not in touch with the people. But obviously, they're not in touch with the people because everybody is nominated by the top. Uh, even local governors are nominated by the president. And uh, this is one, actually one of the main um, uh, requests and demands of the protests uh, were essentially give, it, give us at least the, the, the possibility to elect our own uh, local governors. That way we can at least affect that kind of local politics uh, dimension. And uh, and yeah, so and also, uh, like you mentioned, the the west of the country, which is the oil and gas producing region, uh, the one that is a, essentially a net donor to the budget, um, has always felt uh, left out and marginalized by the center, uh, because with that wealth is how um, the former president built. Uh, the, the new capital, Astana, renamed uh, after him, Nur Sultan, uh, in 2019, uh, in this glitzy uh, skyscrapers, uh, hosted the expo in 2017. Um, and, and that kind of wealth was transferred uh, directly to this uh, pet project of the former president, essentially. So if those LPG prices, if they had not been increased, how likely do you think protests would would have been? After all, they, like I've said, like you know, both of us were saying, there have been uh, protests in uh, Kazakhstan recently. Was there was something bound to have triggered protests, whether it was the fuel price hike or something else? I, I believe so. We had no idea uh, what would have uh, triggered something, but we uh, had witnessed, for example, in 2021, uh, an unprecedented number uh, of strikes. It's not about the length of the strikes, uh, but about the number. Um, uh, virtually all oil companies in uh, in the west of the country witnessed uh, strikes in 2021. Um, there's been attempts to record all of them, but I think uh, we've all failed because there are so many. And, uh, and most of them were essentially demands for better conditions and better salary. Um, and the pandemic also had a worsening effect, uh, obviously, on, on, the, on the people's uh, ability to, uh, to survive. A lot of oil companies uh, fired um, their, their staff um, and and the conditions essentially became worse, and this had was boiling was was boiling under under the lid of of this uh, pot, and we were expecting um, that the people would have come out on the street. Uh, I was expecting personally something like this. Uh, on the 16th of uh, December, when I was in the square in Almaty, um, the same square that was the theater of the violent clashes. Um, but uh, a lot of um, police uh, was met by a few dozen activists. Um, and that, to me, felt like, okay, maybe um, the, the protest sentiment is not ready yet. Um, so 
you know the situation will stay will stay calm and uh, lo and behold <laughs> i was contradicted uh, just a couple of weeks later so uh, what were those december protests about if the lpg prices had not been uh, raised yet what were those protests about back in december because i think that would reveal something about the protests that would happen after the prices were increased yeah, I mean, this is an important piece of background. Uh, 16th of, Jan of December uh, is an important date in Kazakhstan. Uh, it was the date of uh, the in protests, popular protests in, the, in 86 against the Soviet uh, regime. It was the same day uh, then chosen to be the Independence Day for Kazakhstan. Um, and then in 2011, for the 20th anniversary, um, an eight-month uh, long strike um, was suppressed in violence in the town of Janozen, which is the theater also of the original protests in 2022. Um, and, uh, and so people were essentially uh, came out in, on December 16, 2021 to celebrate uh, and mourn um, both Independence Day and, and the suppression of the protests of 86 and 2011. And um, they did so uh, in a way that uh, was demonstrative and performative, um, but wasn't um, didn't mobilitate uh, a lot of uh, people. Um, some of them, some some people are when whenever they, these protests happen, uh, are arrested preemptively. Um, some of them are basically told not to go, otherwise they would face arrest. So. Uh, a lot of people didn't come out on the street uh, originally, but um, in the previous years and the same day, there had been um, a big, bigger crowds in, in the streets. And that justifies also the fact that on December 16th, the police presence was uh, massive, uh, something that we didn't really see um, in, on the 5th of January when, when the um, protests turned into violence, and the police essentially left uh, the same uh, square in Almaty. This uh, police protest was huge in December, despite there being a very small protest of, as you say, like around 100 protesters. So to what extent do you think Kazakhs believe the same thing that happened in 1986 under Soviet leadership, and again in 2011 under their own supposedly independent government, is happening now? Is there a sense that nothing has changed despite Kazakh independence and the end of the Soviet Union? There is essentially, yes, uh, a sense that they haven't had a choice in a really, really long time. Uh, and so this this is uh, something that continues to, to be a problem, I think, for the legitimacy of, of, uh, of the leadership in, in Kazakhstan. Um, President Tokayev um, named a new parliament uh, nine days ago on January 11th. And uh, a few ministers are still the same as Nazarbayev, Nazarbayev's ministers. Uh, so their their ministers that have been there for five six years have endured the um, the, uh, the change of power between Nazarbayev and Tokayev. So um, the the understanding of the people is that the regime hasn't changed uh, quite, almost at all. And they have to function still under the same uh, rigged rules of the game uh, that make them losers and uh, a few uh, rich elites the winners. So what explains not only the increased intensity of the police presence back in December, but then again on January 5th, a very small 
response by police. What explains that increased intensity and then a lack of police presence on January 5th? Uh, I w uh, I'm sorry that th that came out, uh, came across um, maybe wrong, but uh, the police presence has always been massive and disproportionately bigger than the protests in Kazakhstan, precisely, especially since 2011, precisely because they didn't want to repeat uh, a situation in which it went out of control. And this is why when we look at January, um, conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, the explanation that uh, probably Tokayev didn't fully control the entirety of his security apparatus comes true, possibly. Um, he uh, fired, Tokayev fired uh, and then arrested for treason the chief uh, of the um, security service and uh, um, stripped uh, former President Nazarbayev of his position as head of the National Security Council. Um, and this is, uh, is, was a sign to, to most analysts that uh, essentially um, Tokayev wanted to take control and possibly put his own men at the top of, of, of these apparatuses because uh, on between the night of January 4th and the morning of of january 5th we saw a, sh a radical shift in the in the uh, presence in the people that were uh, present in the in the streets and in the squares of Almaty, and the way that they behaved the way that they attacked the police they attacked government buildings um in a way that wasn't familiar at all uh, to uh, peaceful protesters who have nothing to do uh, with that kind of, uh, of violence and they were left again to to do so they were left to destroy everything and they were faced only by uh young recruits a lot of uh the weapons that these violent uh looters and and violent um groups uh obtained they obtained from uh young recruits in the army that were sent to um to protect the buildings but obviously it wasn't the highly trained special forces. It was, you know, young recruits with that were essentially scared when they saw the, this big crowd of uh, of violent people coming towards them. And I want to get to why uh, the how the uh, protests were hijacked by those who were committing violence. But first, you you write suspicions of corruption, diminishing purchasing power, and galloping inflation were all factors in turning the quote unquote gas protest into a full-fledged mass unrest. What is corrupting Kazakh po politics? What is fueling that corruption? Is it simply the oil and gas industry? Oh, well, the oil and gas industry is uh, the biggest export um, and uh, one of the main um, uh, financial uh, means for, for the budget to to survive um but but it's not just that it's a system of uh, kleptocracy it's a system of uh, of corruption and let's not forget uh because uh, i don't want to um sound orientalist at all uh kazakhstan is uh, absolutely integrated into global processes of uh, of capital flows and uh, a lot of the corruption that has enriched elites and has stripped people of their power comes from uh, foreign transnational 
companies that operate mainly in the oil and gas industry, but also in other uh, extractive industries. Um, they've paid bribes. There, 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 there is evidence um, that of that uh, with U.S. Um, corporations, Italian corporations. Um, that's just what's been demonstrated in the courts. And, and that is has fueled the system of, uh, of patronage. So um, essentially, the foreign companies relied on uh, specific people to hold uh, power on certain sectors of the of the in the, on certain uh, industrial sectors, so that they could essentially operate uh, without checks. And this is uh, as an is an important element uh, because a lot of the Kazakhs, Kazakhstanis uh, in the countries feel that their own wealth was stripped both by the corrupt elite, but also by foreign corporations. So do you think corruption then within Kazakhstan is more externally than internally driven, or is that a mistake to make that parsing of words? I, th I think uh, corruption there is, is a mix of, it's a mixture of both. Uh, I think um, we have to look at, at Kazakhstan as an, uh, as I said before, as an integrated member of the uh, international um, uh, financial flows that have to do with offshore accounts that have to do with, uh, you know, um, suspicious and hardly checked uh, companies in the UK, in Scotland, uh, in, so not just in Delaware, so not just in, in, in uh, fiscal paradises, but also in, uh, in the West. And uh, a lot of the companies that operate, uh, transnational companies that operate in Kazakhstan, their uh, own headquarters are not uh, in their own uh, country of origin, but in the Netherlands or even in uh, in other uh, fiscal paradises like the Bahamas. So uh, in that sense, we see that um, the corruption is really intertwined. A lot of the uh, corrupt uh, elites of the country um, go on vacation in you know the south of France or in Monte Carlo, uh, in Paris, in London. They they own uh, in immense wealth uh, abroad. They own almost castles in Switzerland, and that that is that gives you um, an idea of the both the the mass massive wealth that they've accumulated, but also of the accomplices that they have uh, across the world in terms of the legal systems that allow them uh, to, to do so, to extract wealth from the country and bring it to their own private uh, um, villas uh, in, in, in the West. So what, what's missed in our understanding of the protests in Kazakhstan when the role that Western nations, nations like the United States, businesses that are based in places like the United States and elsewhere, when, when we ignore that uh, the role that they play in that corruption, what do we miss in understanding those protests? Because that's certainly not something that was coming up in any of the news reports that I saw here in the States, that this is due to corruption that is fueled by Western nations and Western businesses, including those in the United States. Well, you saw the reaction to um, to the protest in the West um, and elsewhere was very similar. So uh, there is protest, there is violence in in Kazakhstan. Uh, the biggest city is uh, ablaze, essentially uh, stun grenades, tear gas, 
shootings. Uh, and meanwhile, the European Union is deeply concerned. The United States is very preoccupied. Uh, China is uh, very uh, worried. Um, and, and Russia offers help um, to, to show support. Essentially, we see that everybody who has uh, interests in the country was mostly um, concerned about the stability of the regime uh, rather than um, the possibility of the people who are protesting uh, to be heard. Um, so, so in that sense, we saw very similar reactions, and now we see very similar uh, statements. You know, the, in the in foreign press, the issue of Kazakhstan has almost disappeared now. Um, because uh, it's it's calm, uh, it's not violent anymore. It's not risky. Um, the the workers at uh, Tengiz, which is one of the largest oil fields in the world, uh, near the Caspian uh, region, um, went on strike on uh, January fourth in solidarity with the original protests, and that caused worry uh, because uh, Chevron invested. Um, probably more than $50 billion in that field. And obviously didn't want that kind of uh, money to, to go to waste or to see that nationalized. Um, we, see, we saw today, this morning, um, uh, reports of uh, workers of a service oil, oil service company requesting the nationalization of the company, which is a different claim from the claims that they had last year when they asked for uh, better conditions and better pay. Now they're actually saying, let's you know, have our own, uh, let's own our own companies. Let's, uh, uh, you know, let's have the, the profits from, from, from this wealth stay in the country, um, which is quite interesting as a, as a development uh, in, in there. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, but you, that's a good point, though. So how far do you think nationalization or breaking up the fuel sector monopoly would go toward ending Kazakh uh, corruption? Do you think that that is the possible solution to ending the inequality, the poverty, and the corruption that people are protesting in Kazakhstan? It, it could be a solution, um, but uh, it's never going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm very uh, skeptical on this, uh, also because uh, President Tokayev, uh, one of his first tweets in English was directed specifically to foreign investors, saying, we restored the calm in the country, everything is fine. You're, you will always find an open door for your investment uh, in the country. So that is a message to say, your money here is safe, your investments here are safe. If you want to bring more, please know that uh, I'm the gatekeeper uh, and uh, I have the numbers that you have to call essentially to, to make money. So, so that is, is essentially uh, the message. And but I don't I don't I'm not sure that the people of Kazakhstan have actually the power to um, to to change the system from from below, uh, especially now that they are both um, unheard and also repressed uh, because of this uh, state of emergency that just ended, um, and uh, possibly we're going to see as as many also human rights defenders have said uh, we're going to see um, a high uh, high, high level of uh, crackdown against whoever uh, descends from um, from the official line of the regime.
So how sustainable do you think police crackdowns are in keeping order and ending popular discontent and protest in Kazakhstan? Is is this a sustainable pro- pro- uh, process where every time there's a protest, all the uh, government has to do is have another police crackdown and the problem is uh, solved again for the government? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I disagree with uh, that kind of policy, um, but also I don't think that is a sustainable uh, solution. Also because I think a lot of um, Nazarbayev's original legitimacy was that he kept the country whole. Um, He was dealing with a country with a very complex demographics um, composition. Um, He was dealing with a a country in uh, in crisis, essentially, at at independence in the early 90s. People tell me about their their uh, youth when you know their parents had to go find bread uh, in the 90s, um, and uh, and he brought it to a country that uh, is essentially the, the the richest in in Central Asia and and uh, one of the countries where uh, despite inequality people could survive, um, but. Tokayev now his uh, uh, we can say is one step removed from that uh, legitimacy, right? Because he's the product of the system, but he's not the father of the nation. So uh, how easy it will be for him to maintain order uh, through his arm fist is quite uh, debatable. And um, and the fact that he had to essentially call for external help uh, with the CSTO intervention and uh, kind of seal of approval. Um, by foreign leaders um, shows that uh, he probably needs to uh, regain control of the security apparatus, um, but that means that he could also lose it faster than, uh, than Nazarbayev, for example, would have. Writing for Open Democracy, you contacted Yevgeny Jovtis, who you describe as a prominent human rights defender and director of the Kazakhstan International Bureau for Human Rights, who was in Almaty and uh, the business capital of Kazakhstan, and you interviewed him via telephone. He was able to offer a tentative explanation of the causes and developments during the week beginning January 2nd, as well as some insights on what uh, to you get Yevgeny, uh, he believed, might happen next. And he tells you the last group participating in the protest Protests. This is after the peaceful protests emerged, and then they were being co-opted by people who were being more violent. The last group participating in the protests, which by no means should be considered as unitary or organized as the violent section composed of Islamists and criminal elements infiltrated by loyalists to local elites. It is likely that Islamist groups were behind the burning of government buildings in the northern city of Aktobe, where Islamist cells historically exist. The involvement of these people, whose objective was to attack the police and steal weapons, was visible in the south as well. And uh, the third and fourth group, the marginalized rural young people and those committing violence, joined forces in certain instances, especially in Almaty, escalating the violence against the police, which responded with an iron fist. So how popular are these Islamists and criminal elements infiltrated by loyalists to local elites who were behind the violence? To what extent do they represent Kazakhstan or do they both represent a minority of the Kazakh people? 
They're definitely uh, a marginal minority. Um, Kazakhstan is a 70% Muslim population, but um, Islam there is uh, interpreted in a kind of post-Soviet way, so it's uh, milder. Um, like uh, you know, a lot mild, milder also because of globalization. So a lot of influences from uh, from other. Um, uh, globalized, let's say, uh, trends have uh, tempered uh, is Islamist uh, and, and also more radical um, thoughts. Um, and, and these cells are generally very tiny, uh, very, very controlled by the, um, the KNBE, the security apparatus. And, um, and so the fact that they were able to kind of organize, take up arms, and uh, and, and act um, meant that there were you know holes in the security system apparatus um, controlling them, and um, but they they don't stir up uh, solidarity, they don't stir up um, protest by themselves. They only were able to to exploit the situation of violence and, and crisis to uh, attack specific targets. But they, they're not pop popular. They, if you go you know, in the streets of Almaty, um, finding you know, somebody who, um, who thinks that these ideas are worth pursuing and you, know, you should destroy the state and build a caliphate, it's going to be really hard to find somebody like that. So is there, and if I'm describing this incorrectly, please feel free to correct me, is there a kind of war, if you will, between Islamists and criminal elements infiltrated by loyalists to local elites, while the rest of peaceful Kazakh, they sit back and watch? Uh, I, I I wouldn't be able to to answer this question um, mostly because we don't really know who actually participated. Also, uh, Evgeny Zhovtis's uh, words are guesses as well. Uh, he was in Almaty, obviously, but uh, he was also uh, a distant uh, witness of, of these protests. And we don't really know who was there. Uh, I believe the majority of who was there were uh, marginalized. Uh, people uh, who were looting essentially for um, lack of a better way of uh, earning a living. Uh, I'm I I don't want to condemn looting, uh, but um, it, that that was seemed to be the case because um, also they were not able to use the weapons when they were seizing it uh, from from the military. So so you could see in, in a lot of uh, video correspondence that came out uh, only after the internet blocking was was over, um, that these these protesters were essentially amateurs that were just stealing some TVs or or some some alcohol, uh, which is also gives you um, an idea of how um, desperate people are. People essentially really cannot afford alcohol, which means that you know there's a big, big socioeconomic problem uh, in the country if uh, if people are there to essentially steal things that um, everybody else around the world can essentially afford. So, um, in in that sense, uh, I think it's really, really hard to understand who was there. Um, for sure, there were criminal 
um, elements for sure. There were Islamist elements, but we're talking about very tiny cells compared to the vast majority who were essentially confused and marginalized people who uh, felt the euphoria of the moment and, uh, and became violent. So just a few more questions for you, Paolo. So to what extent do you think uh, President Tokayev will take away the rights he allowed only two years ago? Uh, that's a big fear, uh, especially because he pointed to uh, human rights activists uh, and foreign press uh, and media outlets um, as, as the guilty uh, ones for having um, brought Kazakhs onto this level of tension, um, which is a disproportionate, I think, uh, way of accusing people who have uh, literally struggled to to make uh, the regular Kazakhstani voices heard, um, and and that's that's a main fear essentially. Um, we we all hope that, uh, especially now that there's been there's going to be new. Uh, institutional uh, structures being built uh, to um, bring closer the government and the people. So intermediary bodies like uh, councils of um, of uh, understanding uh, call like that. <laughs> I don't know why uh, it's, it's really hard to uh, translate. So uh, these councils might might be might be a way for for dialogue. But because they're, again, top-down, uh, I feel that it's going to be really hard to um, to shake off this accusation from Tokayev and, and do work in a way that is productive. From the government's pers- perspective, then, did the media blackout work in ending the protests? Uh, well, it, it did really work in, in confusing everybody uh, and to uh, let the narrative of the state uh, win. Um, so uh, one anecdotal fact is that um, the, uh, the locals in Kazakhstan saw a video of a beaten up Kyrgyz man um, who confessed of being part of the looting and being paid to fly into uh, the country and uh, with other foreigners to to destroy things. Um, and But we, from abroad, uh, we were able to reach um, the Kyrgyz press, which was saying that this man is, in fact, a famous jazz musician. Um, and so, and, and the, the, so then the government built built a fake news uh, and fed it to its own people while the internet was was out. Um, and and we knew. So we knew uh, that th- this was fake while people in Kazakhstan didn't. And, and the government propaganda was really, really strong in those moments because there was only one channel, one TV channel on and one news website available in, in the country. And that really... Um, uh, drove the narrative, uh, which changed also a, a bunch of times because first it was internal forces, an internal coup, then it became 20,000 terrorists, then it became you know a few terrorists trained from uh, from abroad, and that's what brought the brought in the CSTO intervention. So the narrative was confused, um, but the propaganda machine 
let only that uh, narrative go um, to the to the radios and the TVs of the people. And uh, we were, you know, abroad and unable to essentially um, really tell the story or spread the stories that were being um, uh, written in, inside Kazakhstan across uh, the country. You also write that while journalists and campaigners are concerned about press freedom on social media's Amalti's media, or middle class has stood firmly against the looting of their city, calling for arrest and a stronger law enforcement presence. Is the middle class getting the police or did they get the police and press crackdown that they want? And if so, what does that reveal to you about the middle class when they are on the side of the government and police? Are they simply afraid or is it more than that? Uh, I think that's uh, a little bit of a class uh, struggle um, because, um, yes, they they were on the side of the protesters at the beginning as long as they were peaceful. And then as, as soon as uh, somebody broke a window, they turned against them. Um, and this tells you a story of uh, a similar story happened in 2011. Because uh, in 2011, when the oil workers were striking, uh, oil workers are um, notoriously among the highest paid in the country. They're not paid that much, but still they, the highest paid. And so the people in Almaty were not in solidarity, did not you know, show any solidarity with the workers in, um, in Janauzen, in the west of the country, because they were paid highly. And so they said, well, you, you get a high paycheck, a big paycheck, so uh, shut up and go to work. And that kind of uh, attitude to, by the middle class, uh, especially in Almaty, is, is something that um, I think is one of the biggest um, kind of breaks to, to, to the waves of, uh, of protests in the country, because there's a lot of, um, uh, of fear that the interests of small and medium enterprises could be hit by um, an uprising uh, of the people. One last question for you, Paolo. We've been speaking with Dr. Paolo Cervello, journalist and researcher covering Kazakhstan and Central Asia. You can follow him on Twitter at Paolo Bottleneck. You can find his writing at Global Voices, globalvoices.org, as well as Open Democracy, opendemocracy.net. One last question for you, and as you likely know, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, and the audience is going to hate your response. So is Kazakhstan's future either going to be led by those who were engaged in peaceful protests or those who engaged in violent protests? And my bigger question is, who has more power right now? The Islamists as well as the criminal element and marginalized youth who were engaged in that violence or the peaceful protesters? I realize that peaceful protesters may outnumber those other groups, but who has the most power? Well, uh, question from hell for sure. Um, thank you for this. Uh, I think uh, the most power is still held by the government. Um, and it kind of, in, in a cynical way, if I had to answer in a cynical way, it doesn't really matter who has more power among the people that uh, protested against um, the government. Uh, because um, the most power is still held by by, by the government. Um, although I, I would say that um, I think the peaceful, the fact that the peaceful protests spread so widely, so quickly across the country, uh, is a 
is a positive sign because um, the because of the solidarity, the, the the feeling of solidarity, the feeling of of being all in the same boat is something that we hadn't seen before in Kazakhstan, and it might trigger uh, a better um, understanding. Uh, nationally of this very big, very dispersed, um, sparsely populated country um, and could uh, coalesce into a, into a movement or some sort of um, common understanding that uh, there are certain demands that can be uh, put forward uh, so that the government could finally listen. Paolo, thank you so much for being on our show. Please stay in contact with us. We would love to have more reports on Kazakhstan from you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for being a Patreon subscriber. Thanks for winning the question from Helen for a couple times, too. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is Helen of that conversation with Paolo on this month's Protests in Kazakhstan was in some way informative, enlightening, or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support. Completely listener-supported, this is hell. Sebastian, remind our listening audience, what is this question? What is this week's question from hell? And please tell us if we have any more responses. Uh, this question's week from hell is, <laughs> what are you putting off uh, this week? What are you putting off? Um, and on Twitter, Super Scion Reuptake Inhibitor says, airs. People put them on, I do the reverse. <laughs> Take, putting off airs, I like that. Eat Fart 69 says, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is just, this is just the name. Uh, he, he uh, they are putting off everything. All right. Joel G says, he is putting off moving to Vienna, Austria. No. I think uh, we all are. Aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> At some point, we all end up in Vienna. Um, Paul Nice Good says he is putting off my responsibilities and commitments. <laughs> um, Frack Lou Elmo says he is putting off his underwear. <laughs> um, and Valentine Frobisher says uh, they are putting off their appointment with death. <laughs> that sounds like a good thing to put off. You can leave, still leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, which is coming up. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question mail in just a few minutes. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at Patreon. Dot com slash this is hell on this week's Patreon podcast. It's another installment of our non-award winning segment this week in hell when I share what I got out of this week's hell, which is not necessarily what you got out of this week's hell. And this week was pretty hellish. We started with the U.S. Mil militia movement becoming more extreme and conspiratorial and potentially violent. Moved on to the psychotherapeutic benefits of psychedelics that indigenous people have known about for millennia, but are now being co-opted and commercialized by Silicon Valley, erasing that indigenous history. And wrapping up with peaceful protests against corruption, inequality, and poverty, which were hijacked by those seeking violence. And we're also sharing an interview from 20 years ago, January 19th, 2002. Now, I had no idea what we were doing 20 years ago here on the show, but I looked it up and found an interview with Russell McIver, editor of Corporate Crime Reporter. 
So let me ask you, do you remember something called Enron and an outfit called An Arthur Anderson, which at the time was known as one of the big five accounting firms? If you do, there's likely something you don't remember or never knew about the scandals that took down both operations, and that is, as Russell reported to us at the time, those problems went all the way up to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was supposed to be overseeing both companies and regulating the, them, but for whatever reason was not. You might say this is all ancient history, but in fact it says something about the American brand of structural cronyism that still exists today, which means this week on Patreon, it's This Week in Hell, and we go back 20 years to find the SEC's role in the Enron scandal. Again, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and Lisa writes saying, I heard your speculation about smoking may be affecting your throat. Do you still primarily smoke? Don't you have a medical card yet? I just got mine as I made the switch to mostly edibles and oils or tinctures, especially one-to-one -one with CBD in combination over the past year anyway. Got it for chronic hip pain, probably osteoarthritis. I get the ceremony, fun, immediacy of smoking and still do it on occasion. But really, if you're going for the health management and psychoactive benefits, cut the combustion and eat it. Gummies or gummies, tinctures, RSO oil that can be put into tea, capsules with a stable vegetable oil base like coconut. There's so many uh, options. My seven cents, miss your face. Lisa, thank you, Lisa. I miss your face as well, as Lisa is somebody who would regularly join us at office hours downstairs at Carrie's Lounge. She also recommends that I get an up-to-date uh, state ID so I can legally purchase recreational THC in all its forms. And she's absolutely correct, because I have still yet to buy legal weed, despite it being legal here in Illinois since January 2020, just in time for the pandemic. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. Michael Reisel Manifesto. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Under all our feet, under the ocean, in oil paintings in museums, throughout the porous wood and plaster in buildings, stretching in every direction throughout all soil, where any plant grows, is a network of fungus fibers, mostly microscopically thin comprising millions of collective fungal organisms, some of them spanning many square miles. Mushrooms are just the fruiting nodes of these mycelial networks, a way of spreading their spores and thereby procreating. Be fruitful and multiply, mycelial network of beings. Alex Jones is a fungal node, spreading his conspiratorial spores, a node in the conspiracy network linking nodes all over the country, all over the world. Each extractive interest in the web of devouring growth capitalism is a fruiting fungal node, linking all the gamblers betting that finance will defeat real life. But there are countervailing webs. Theater is a web. Individual productions, the fruiting nodes of rebirth. The various networks of art and culture are such webs. Artists and writers are fruiting nodes in an ever-emergent language of aesthetics and ideas. Farmers are fruiting nodes in the web of food, and until we recognize how important those nodes are and provide them their care, study, resources, knowledge, and respect they deserve, 
Our food supply will never be the sustainable global web of abundant sustenance for everyone that needs it to be if humans are to have a future. The web of life is a repudiation of fascism. The web of life is anti-capitalist. Each organism and ecology of organisms, a fruiting body along the entangled strands of those networks. Each being and ecology of beings, a source of resistance against the acquisitive, gobbling, hoarding mentality that weaves its own web of death wish and lies. The network of subversive actions by nodal activists is a web of resistance against the conformist web of fascism. Abundance requires distribution, as fair and equal as possible. Therefore, fighters for fair distribution of abundance are nodes in a vital network. It's all metaphor. Yet it's also not metaphorical at all. The mycelial web is real and all-pervasive. The health of the fungal web is beginning to be understood as the only way to preserve thriving forests and farms. Ecosystems on land and in water can't support flora or fauna, including human society. If the mycelial network is interrupted, unearthed, and destroyed by pavement and chemical toxicity, and so we return again and again to the model of the mycelial network. The web of life is the mycelial web. We are mushroom nodes in that web. Disasters are not only opportunities for disaster capitalists. The rainstorms of revolt cause us to fruit and spread. As we spread, we strengthen our connections. Just as the spider weaves a web that is an extension of her body and consciousness, so are our networks of friends and like-minded strangers, extensions of our attempts, conscious and unconscious, to bring about the world we envision, even if only bit by bit, node by node, strand by strand. Yes, to your dismay and dyspepsia, perhaps, I'm going on about webs, spinning a piebald and lumpy prosody in dizzying grandiosity, about networks, about nets, like neural nets, and the global network of music, itself comprising smaller networks of various musics, musicians, and their appreciators. Dance? is a network, the cosmic dance, the dance of phantasmic jellyfish in the deep ocean, of elvers from rivers to the dancing sea forests of the Sargasso, the dance of elements from stellar explosions through planetary erosion, oceanic dissolution, and transportation through environments biotic and geological on our planet and billions of others. And of course, there are human dancers. As much as I ignore dance, because I am jealous, being squat, botch-footed, and ungainly, I can't deny that we all move. Everything in the universe is in motion. It's cosmic. I can't deny it. So dance, you fruity acrobats, in your ensembles, pairs, or solo, as the galaxy wheels. We have to remember that we are not alone. I have to remind myself of that continually, even as destructive discourse from every side seeks to isolate me. And we must not let others be left abandoned by community. Capital loves abandoning those who don't feed its gluttonous gob, all while exalting hoarders of wealth and power on gilded thrones of invented rather than inventive achievement. The universe is a network of networks of bodies and forces. Some are animal brains and fungal and vegetal minds, existing among and connected to all the other minds we may have or may not have material evidence for at the present time. Maybe there is a web of some kind of consciousness reaching and weaving throughout all space and time. Who knows? 
Mark my words, heathens, and mark them well. The unity of the universe is inescapable, and you'd best thank your lucky mushroom that it is. Your fearful egos fighting unity will be swallowed in the web, and in your fear of egalitarian freedom's oblivion, you will scream, Help me! Help me! But no Vincent Price will be forthcoming with a rock to free you from your torment. The spider, the weaver of the web, will drink you and make more web from you. Only then will you have achieved anything worthy of admiration. The numbers men of capital are doing all they can to erase our memory and to try to atomize people. They manipulate technology, curb our imaginations with Christo-European cultural domination, the illusory governmental virtue of austerity, and the artifice of borders to indoctrinate us from birth. The three P's, privatization, policing, and propaganda, divide us who have the common interest of ending exploitation and resource theft, separate us from each other with compartmentalized interest units. The nuclear family, the internet, and now the plague have made their job easier, although, of course, every tool of oppression, even disaster capitalism, contains within it the possibility for subversion and repurposing by the people toward liberation. Workers! Farmers, renters, unhoused, lumpen, impoverished, mocked, humiliated, and all unite. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain, especially the great chain of being. This has been the moment of truth. Hi, good eye. Jeff, I did horrible clock management this week, so we're up against the clock. But I just want to tell you that there is a 2019 episode of that PBS series, America Reframed, and it follows a Detroit postal carrier around his route in the 48202 area code. And it talks about uh, the recent history, the past history and the recent history of Detroit when it comes to uh, segregation, whether that segregation is due by race or class or money. and they uh, often quote Kurt Guyette in that uh, in that uh, show. And Kurt Guyette is a past guest on our show, and one of the people who helped break all of the Flint water crisis stories. So I'm telling you, check out America Reframed. Look up 48202, and you will find it. I know that you will enjoy it as a former Detroiter like myself. I'm going to check it out, and I'd like to welcome Sebastian to the show. Oh, look at you being so friendly. All and right. I'd love him to turn up his volume. Yes, he did, and it's, <laughs> it's great. And Jeffy? Yeah? Until next time? What? Stay beautiful. Uh, Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Sebastian, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell? I'm sure we... Maybe we do? I'm not too sure if we do. Do we have any more responses, any more answers to this week's question from Hell, Sebastian? Uh, we have one more, okay. and that is from The Left Isn't Divided, The Center <laughs> Is. Um, they say they are putting off myself. And then they say, oh wait, putting off. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So the answers I liked the most were Sloan saying that they're putting off Jesus. Greg saying that they're putting off, uh, kicking off the global insurrection. Got to build up my Netflix watch list first. David having the obvious answer of submitting an answer to the question from hell. That's a great answer and an obvious one. Rob saying everyone around me, and I would give it to Rob, but Rob I know has won in the past, and he gave me my, he sent me an office chair, and I don't want to make it sound like there is pay for play going on this show. Uh, Braden saying the inevitable, Benjamin saying organizing a carpenter's reunion. Uh, but that makes this week's winner, and I think it's just because Jeff kept talking about Webb so much. 
Paul H. Dusting, partly because that spider's web above my TV is very intricate and impressive, procrastinating on working around it. That's what he's been putting off. Paul H., you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. All you have to do is just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want and send us your mailing address address and we will get it in the mail post haste. My answer to this week's Question from Hell, what have you been putting off? My friends, it was hard enough when I did not have a social life on weekends because we were doing all four hours of This Is Hell live every Saturday morning. Now we stream live during the week at thisishell.com, our podcast shortly after at the same place, with our world broadcast premiere being aired on Saturday mornings on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM. The idea back in July 2019 when we made this change was that my girlfriend and I could get our weekends back and start seeing our friends again. Finally, after nearly 25 years of social isolation, we'd, be, we'd get to hang out with the people we love and cherish the most, who we are fortunate to have the privilege of knowing. Instead, the pandemic hit only a few months later, and we've been socially isolating again. And man, was our putting off seeing our friends. That's really been putting off our friends. So to all of my friends who may be listening right now, my apologies, and we cannot wait. Seriously, we're having serious trouble waiting. We can't wait to see you all again whenever that will be. Thanks to everyone for sending in your responses to this week's question from Hell. Sebastian, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's show? Uh, yeah, next week's show, uh, we have Corey Pine um, on his Baffler article, Dawn of the Space Lords. Uh, then we have... <laughs> Which sounds crazy, by the way. Um, I mean, I, 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 for one, cannot wait for uh, the, the, the takeover of um, our new overlords from space. Yeah. Uh, then we have Wednesday, we have we have Ashwin Ravikumar on his article to save the rainforests, provide health care, education and services for those who protect them for the trouble and the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. And Ashwin, uh, some of you may know, may know from hanging out with us during office hours when we were having office hours, uh, the weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. This week's hangover cure is kimchi and an egg. Thanks to this week's guests in order, sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the U.S. are moving toward more violent extremism. Thanks to Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. I really enjoyed that article and that conversation. And again, thanks to Paolo Sorbello, journalist and researcher covering Kazakhstan and Central Asia. You can follow him on Twitter at Paolo Bottleneck. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for producing. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for his cameo role. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board this week. Jeff Dorchin for the Moment of Truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in, hot, in history. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when it's another installment of This Week in Hell, our semi-regular feature where I share with you what I got out of this week's hell, which is not likely what you got out of this week's hell. In an interview with, from 20 years ago with corporate crime reporter himself, Russell McIver, on the Enron scandal that took down Arthur Anderson, a scandal that went all the way up to the Securities and Exchange Commission. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. 
For more interview help and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>